Welcome back, Hemming Brain Yaks, to Book 5, Chapter 4. There goes Uncle Gotthold. What impact might this have on the family? Starfall 15 says, whether he married beneath his station or not, Gotthold would have been disgraced by his father. Hence he did the right thing by marrying someone he actually loved than someone to further the family fortunes. A fortune that would have gone to his siblings regardless. So... Thomas's situation is different than his uncle's. I understand the three daughters' point of view and resentment, but to target Clotilde seems a little cruel. About Clotilde, besides her eating well, although always hungry, has her life with her rich uncle opened better prospects for her? Doesn't look like it. Again, my peeve with Thomas Mann is that characters are not given more history and background. I understand the work is focused on a specific family in a specific town, and isn't a grand saga of a family in the 19th century German as a backdrop. But to disgrace those characters living in the same milieu, Christian better be dying too if he can't bother going to his uncle's deathbed. Tekrific says, Christian is self-absorbed. I doubt it's real. Hypochondriac for sure. It feels a little unearned, perhaps, but I really like Gotthold, says Tegrific. He lived with dignity, managed his affairs smaller by Buddenbrook's standards, and got to retire from the earnings from selling his shop. An unambitious man, but dignified and unassuming. Thomas makes him a console instead of himself, a nice gesture, and so began Gotthold's second career that we know nothing about. It all happens away from the pages of this book, as so much of the rest of Gotthold's story. R.I.P. Gotthold, Buddenbrook. And Tekrific's also jumped in with the correct link to the podcast. It looks like I might have messed up the link. Yeah, I did. Whoops, my bad. Thank you, Tekrific, for correcting that. I don't know how I got that wrong, but apparently I did. All right, well... Old got old dead. Just like that. And uh, here's chapter five. Deaths in the family usually induce a religious mood. It was not surprising after the decease of the consul to hear from the mouth of his widow expressions which she had not been accustomed to use. But it was soon apparent that this was no passing phase. Even in the last years of the consul's life, his wife had more and more sympathised with his spiritual cravings, and it now became plain that she was determined to honour the memory of her dead by adopting as her own all his pious conceptions. She strove to fill the great house with the spirit of the deceased, that mild and Christ-like spirit which yet had not excluded a certain dignified and hearty good cheer. The morning and evening prayers were continued and lengthened. The family gathered in the dining room and the servants in the hall to hear the Frau Consul and Clara read a chapter out of the great family Bible with the big letters. They also sang a few verses out of the hymn book accompanied by the Frau Consul on the little organ or often in place of the chapter from the Bible they had a reading from one of those edifying or devotional books with the black binding and gilt edges 
those little treasuries, jewel caskets, holy hours, morning chimes, pilgrims, staffs and the like, whose common trait was a sickly and languishing tenderness for the little Jesus, and of which there were all too many in the house. Christian did not often appear at those devotions. Thomas, once, chose a favourable moment to disparage the practice. Half-jestingly, but this his objection met with a gentle rebuff. As for Madame Grunlich, she did not unfortunately always conduct herself correctly at the exercises. One morning, when there was a strange clergyman stopping with the Buddenbrooks, they were invited to sing to a solemn and devout melody the following words, I am a reprobate, a warped and hardened sinner. I gobble evil down just like the joint for dinner. Lord, fling thy cur a bone of righteousness to chew, and take my carcass home to heaven and to you. Whereat Frau Grunlich threw down her book and left the room, bursting with suppressed giggles. But the Frau Consul made more demands upon herself than upon her children. She instituted a Sunday school, and on Sunday afternoon only little board school pupils ran at, rang at the door of the house in Meng Street. Steen Voss, who lived by the city wall, and Mike Sturt from Balfounders Street, and Fike Snut from the river bank or groping alley, their straw-coloured locks smoothed back with a wet comb, crossed the entry into the garden room, which for a long time now had been used as an office, and in which rows of benches had been arranged, and Frau Consul Budenbrook, born Kroger, in a gown of heavy black satin, with her white, fined face and still whiter lace cap, sat opposite to them at a little table with a glass of sugar water and catechised them for an hour. Also, she founded the Jerusalem Evenings, which not only Clara and Clethil, but also Tony, were obliged to attend willy-nilly. Once a week they sat at the extension table in the dining room by the light of lamps and candles, some twenty ladies, all of an age when it is profitable to begin to look after a good place in heaven, drank tea, or Bishop ate delicate sandwiches and puddings, read hymns and sermons aloud to each other, and did embroidery, which at the end of the year was sold at a bazaar and the proceeds sent to the mission in Jerusalem. This pious society was formed in the main from ladies of the Frau Consul's own special rank, Frau Senator Langles, Frau Consul Mollendorpf, and old Frau Consul Kistenmacher belonged, but other, more worldly and profane old ladies like Madame Copen made fun of their friend Betsy. The wives of the clergymen of the town were all members, likewise the widow Frau Consul Buddenbrook, born Stewing, and Sesame Wishbrot, and her simple sister. There is, however, no rank and no discrimination before Jesus. And so certain humble oddities were also guests at the Jerusalem evenings, for example, a little wrinkled creature, rich in grace of God and knitting patterns, who lived in the Holy Ghost Hospital and was named Himmels, Him, Himmelsberger. She was the last of her name, the last Himmelsberger, she called herself humbly, and ran her knitting needle under her cap to scratch her head. But far more remarkable were two other extraordinary old creatures, twins, who went about, hand in hand, through the town, doing good deeds in shepherdess hats out of the 18th century, and faded clothes out of the long, long ago. They were named 
Gerhard and asserted that they descended in a direct line from Paul Gerhard. People said they were by no means poor, but they lived wretchedly and gave away all they had. My dears, remarked the Frau Consul, who was sometimes rather ashamed of them. God sees the heart, I know, but your clothes are really a little. One must take some thought for oneself. But she could not prevent them kissing their elegant friend on the brow with the forbearing, yearning, pitying superiority of the poor in heart over the worldly great who seek salvation. They were not at all stupid in their homely shriveled heads for all the world like ancient parrots. They had bright soft brown eyes and they looked out at the world with a wonderful expression of gentleness and understanding. Their hearts were full of amazing wisdom. They knew that in the last day all our beloved gone before us to God will come with song and salvation to fetch us home. They spoke the words, the Lord, with the fluent authority of early Christians, as if they had heard out of the Master's own mouth the words, Yet a little while, and ye shall see me. They possessed the most remarkable theories concerning inner light and intuition and the transmission of thought. One of them, named Leah, was deaf, and yet she nearly always knew what was being talked about. It was usually the deaf Gerhardt who read aloud at the Jerusalem evenings, and the ladies found that she read beautifully and very affectingly. She took out her bag, an old book of a very disproportionate shape, much taller than it was broad, with an inhumanly chubby presentment of her ancestor in the front. She held it in both hands and read in a tremendous voice, in order to catch a little herself of what she read. It sounded as if the wind were imprisoned in the chimney, if Satan, me, would swallow. Goodness, thought Tony Grunlich, how could Satan want to swallow her? But she said nothing and devoted herself to the pudding, wondering if she herself would ever become as ugly as the two Miss Gerhards. She was not happy. She felt bored and out of patience with all the pastors and missionaries whose visits had increased ever since the death of the consul. According to Tony, they had too much to say in the house and received entirely too much money, but this last was Tom's affair, and he said nothing, while his sister now and then murmured something about people who consumed widows' homes and made long prayers. She hated these black gentlemen bitterly, as a mature woman who knew life was no longer a silly innocent. She found herself unable to believe in their irreproachable sanctity. Mother, she said, oh dear, I know I must not speak evil of my neighbours, but one thing I must say, and I should be surprised if life had not taught you that too, and that is that not all those who wear a long coat and say, Lord, Lord, are always entirely without blemish. History does not say what Tom thought of his sister's opinion on this point. Christian had no opinion at all. He confined himself to watching the gentleman with his nose wrinkled up in order to imitate them afterwards at the club or in the family circle. But it is true that Tony was the chief sufferer from the pious visitants. One day it actually happened that a missionary named Jonathan, who had been in Arabia and Syria, a man with great reproachful eyes and baggy cheeks, was stopping in the house and challenged her to assert that the curls she wore on her forehead were consistent with true Christian humility. He had not reckoned with Tony Grunlich's skill at repartee, 
She was silent a moment while her mind worked rapidly, and then out it came. May I ask you, her pastor, to concern yourself with your own curls. With that she rustled out, shoulders up, head back, and chin well tucked in. Pastor Jonathan had never few sorry, had very few curls on his head. It would be nearer truth to say that he was quite bald. And once she had an even greater triumph, there was a certain pastor, Trischk, from Berlin. His nickname was Thierry Trischk, because every Sunday he began to weep at an appropriate place in his sermon. Thierry Trischk had a pale face, red eyes, and cheekbones like a horse's. He had been stopping for eight or ten days with the Buddenbrooks, conducting devotions and holding eating contests with poor Clothilde. Turn about. He happened to fall in love with Tony, not with her immortal soul, oh no, but with her upper lip, her thick hair, her pretty eyes and charming figure, and the man of God who had a wife and numerous children in Berlin was not ashamed to have Anton leave a letter in Madame Grunlich's bedroom in the upper story wherein Bible texts and a kind of fawning sentimentality were surpassingly mingled. She found it when she went to bed, read it, and went with a firm step downstairs into Frau Consol's bedroom where by the candlelight she read aloud the words Sorry, I missed. I lost my spot. She read aloud. What the heck? Ah, oh, here we go. <laughs> Sorry, I completely bamboozled myself. She found it when she went to bed, read, read it, and went with a firm step downstairs into Frau Consol's bedroom, where by the candlelight she read aloud the words of the soul saver to her mother, quite unembarrassed and in a loud voice, so that Terry Trischk became impossible in Meng Street. They are all alike, said Madame Grunlich. Ah, they are all alike. Oh heavens, what a goose I was once. But life has destroyed my faith in men. Most of them are scoundrels, alas, it is the truth. Grunlich. The name was, as always, like a summons to battle. She uttered it with her shoulders lifted and her eyes rolled up. Alright, there we go. That's the chapter for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.